This is the Jason Jones Show, powered by the Vulnerable People Project. Visit thegreatcampaign.org. Now, here's Jason Jones. Aloha, everybody, and welcome to the Jason Jones Show. I am your host, Jason Jones, broadcasting from the Hill Country of Texas. My guest today, David Gronowski, is a thought leader. He's a columnist. He's a radio talk show host. His show, A Neighbor's Choice, is a very unique, creative, and wonderful radio program. He has a new article over at World Net Daily. It's an article that was very thoughtful, very brave, and very timely. The Cross's Shadow in the Holy Land, Violence, Vengeance, and Victimhood. Uh, I read the article. David's a friend of mine. I thought I want everyone to read this article, and I have a bunch of questions for him, so we're bringing him on the show right now. This episode is being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project. We are pushing up on end-of-the-year giving. But what I want to ask you to do today is this. If you go to thegreatcampaign.org and you make a donation of over $25 a month or more as a monthly donor, if you become a monthly donor, $25 a month or more, you will be getting a beautiful Jerusalem cross made in Bethlehem from a family that has been in Bethlehem forever. And this beautiful Christian family, uh, their their business has obviously been impacted by the war. And at VPP, we seek to serve vulnerable communities. So we thought, let's partner with the Christians in Bethlehem to, de- to design beautiful Bethlehem crosses for our donors. And so this will be yours at thegreatcampaign.org. And when you become a monthly donor, you know you're truly standing with the most vulnerable people in the world when the world is left. Whether it's the Christian families now trapped and hiding in Gaza, whether it's the synagogues, we're securing synagogues in African countries where they're exposed to Islamist violence, whether it's those former SIVs and the widows and orphans of our allies in Afghanistan, whether it's to continue and support girls' education in Afghanistan. When you become a monthly donor to VPP, you are standing with the most vulnerable people in the world, from the child in the womb to the child in Darfur. We really rely on our monthly donors. And if you do that now, you'll get this beautiful Bethlehem cross. All right, on with my interview with the courageous and bold David Gronowski. Cross the shadow in the Holy Land on the Jason Jones Show. David Gronowski, welcome to the Jason Jones Show. Hey, Jason, how you doing? I'm doing good. You're first of all, you're one of my favorite radio talk show hosts and podcasters, so it's a privilege to have you over here on the Jason Jones Show. Well. I'm, I'm- honored to be here i know you're an international man of action and mystery so to be on your show means i'm uh, reaching somebody over around the world right? it, yeah well you know what half our audience is outside of the united states and uh, i am i don't know if i'm a man of mystery i do fly a lot but so do you know so do uh fedex pilots yeah but i'm <laughs> but you know you i am a big admirer of yours and i thought i'd have you on my show to help uh, ruin your career Today is this, this the plan? Today is the plan. I'm having, you know, because we're both Gerard, admirers of Rene Girard. 
I won't slander Rene Girard by saying that I'm a Girardian, but um, you know, he says when you stand next to the scapegoat, you become indistinguishable from the scapegoat to the mob. Right. And you waded into a Christian Zionist news site, which is founded by a dear friend of mine who I admire greatly, uh, Joseph Farah, who, I mean, I believe he's a part of a Christian community. They go to church on Saturdays, not Sundays. Um, and I believe that World Net Daily's tilt is definitely very much pro-Israel. But you wade into this most contentious debate on the war in Israel at World Net Daily to stand next to the civilians in Gaza, which makes you, to the mob, indistinguishable from a child hiding in a bunker in Gaza. Is that about right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, World Net Daily, they were the first outlet, really, to put me on the national opinion of the world back when I was 17 years old. So here I am, 34, and I'm proud of these guys because they've always, you know, I don't write every week. I used to, and then I would get off and chase radio stuff and all that, and I get distracted. But I'm gonna, I try to, I go through like a period. It's usually the fall and stuff when I write every week at a, a different outlet. But, you know, World Net Daily's always been pretty uh, loyal to content that I've sent them for the years since I was 17, like I said. And, uh, and the uh, opinion editor there is very, uh, the, the team there is very open minded and they like to hear, you know, ideas that challenge some of their audience's assumptions. So that's, Definitely credit to them, and it's and it's also Jason a kind of a little bit of a critique on some of these newer outlets that are identified with the new right, right? That are all about, oh yeah, we're not neocons, we don't want war mongering. We're more like Trump and you know, not interventionist or realist. Or Until it comes to Israel, wah, wah. Yeah. I mean, no, it's it's kind of, I'm laughing at the people that were calling me all sorts of names for advocating a ceasefire in Ukraine um, right. and peace in Ukraine. I'm calling, they were attacking me. And uh, for one reason, you know, saying that uh, we shouldn't be in war in Ukraine at all because I was advocating that we should continue to assist Ukraine in their effort to repel Russia while advocating for a ceasefire. And they said, well, that would make you a warmonger. <laughs> I said, well, but I literally campaigning for a ceasefire since the first hours of the war. And then I, I went to Ukraine quickly thereafter. Um, now right. in Israel, again, I have advocated for, it, I, not only did I say it was Israel's right, but it's their duty to destroy the terrorists responsible for these horrendous attacks. Um, but I said, we also need to advocate for a ceasefire so that we can ensure the safety of the civilians in Gaza. And so the people who saw that I was a warmonger in Ukraine, um, I hold the same position now in Israel, and now I'm some sort of um, heartless pacifist that doesn't know understand the, the ways of the world. Right, right. Yeah, and, and that's what I got into in my article at Road That Daily is this idea that, you know, every side is very keen, and this is something that we know from Christian anthropology that Gerard kind of put on the map, is every side is convinced and, 
and this kind of tunnel vision that their side is uniquely uh, victimized and therefore uh, kind of given a kind of moral uh, mandate to do what they need to do, even if it requires a, a massive amount of collateral damage or collective punishment, doesn't matter because they're the first one to receive the unjust attack. And so, it, you know, of course, a lot of people start with October 7th and the horrible atrocities that Hamas did there. But here we are later now, and it looks like several thousand innocent civilians in uh, Gaza have been killed so far by what's going on with Israel's response. And the thing that, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff there, but one question I have is, and I, and I cited those uh, sources in this piece is going back since the late 70s, Israel's government and America and others have been funding and putting Hamas on the map. And they've been saying, you know, as recently as 2019 at, at Haaretz newspaper, quoting Netanyahu to his Likud party saying uh, that the PA is a liability and Hamas is an asset. And, and of course, uh, Smoch, uh, his uh, finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, said that, and, and uh, Netanyahu basically said the same thing, saying we we need to support funding Hamas, you know, for our our our, our goals to be achieved. And the question is why, you know, like if the Roman Empire. Well, David, you know, a lot of people are smirking right now, and they're having nervous twitches in their face, and they're and they're and they're and they're calling you a conspiracy theorist. But sadly, right. this isn't a conspiracy. Like this is of public record, and right. and and Netanyahu and others were 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 condemned vehemently uh, by his, their fellow Israelis for this Machiavellian right. um, tactic. Right. Well, I think they thought. I don't know to say that. I mean, if you have Jack the Ripper versus Mister Rogers, not that that's the equivalence of the PA, but if you have more moderate secular forms of governance representing Palestinian interests in the world stage versus somebody who's a little bit more of a snarling, vicious person who's willing to do atrocious things, from the public perception thing, which seems to be everything for the modern states, and you know, and their you know, desires for completing their interests in the world stage, it's all about optics. It's all about appealing to, look, I'm the one most agreed here by a long shot, you know, and therefore I have the moral high ground to to do what I need to do, whether it's taking more land, settling more West Bank, whatever. And, and, and so there's two things there, Jason, you know, just going back to the Roman Empire, I mean, when, when you had a problem and you wanted to get Roman Empire support, you didn't go to them and, and you know, you didn't go to your local issue and start funding your local dispute. You don't go and fund the local opponent and who's most vicious towards your people and then use that as an excuse to go to Rome and say, hey, look, uh, this darling monster is victimizing us. Therefore, we have a moral right to have the full power of Rome support us in wiping all of these people, you know, off the map. That's not going to fly in the Roman Empire. They would say, what are, you, what are you talking about? You're a victim? Why do we need to support victims, right? It's only in Christian, you know, in the 2,000 years since Christianity, where everybody has to appear to be most victimized in order to gain social currency, right? And that's something that Jesus predicted when he said that the, the meek shall inherit the earth. And there's nothing more powerful in the world today, Jason, and you know this, 
unfortunately. There's nothing more politically powerful than the photo of a slain child, right? That's, 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 an, that's an example of the meek inheriting the earth, that the voices of, of slain children really is the most powerful currency, unfortunately, that one can have to advance their political interests. And you remember the famous photo of the poor boy who was, you know, washed on the shores, right, when there were refugees coming into Europe. And that was the big image of the refugees coming into Europe. And, and that's what Hawaii... Or uh, the first it, Gulf War, we were... We had the crying ambassador's daughter, who we weren't told was the ambassador's daughter, um, who was at Georgetown Visitation, but she claimed that she'd been in Kuwait watching Iraqi soldiers bayoneting children. I was a young infantryman at the time, and I was writing letters to my commander and other and other company captains begging to be trans. I wanted to be I wanted to be sent to Iraq specifically to avenge uh, those stories that I had heard. Right. So this is the it's yeah. like a it's like a, literally a playbook on a shelf. Right. But it's a playbook that's that's responding to the framework of a perception that Jesus brought to history. So this that's is I want I want I want to restate what you said very clearly because this is such an important point you made in your article that we have really the collision of the gospel and anti-gospel here which is you know, you're advocating that we stand with those who are truly forgotten and abandoned and suffering violence. And then sort of, but this this victimism that responds to the gospel, You so you even have the government of Israel, uh, Jews, and then Muslims, the Palestinians, making Christian arguments for why we should right. side with them. But they're, they're, argue, they're victimist arguments if they leave the truly vulnerable abandoned. This is a big deal. So the whole world is still spinning around the cross of Jesus Christ. And right. so you're saying prior to Jesus Christ, they wouldn't write Rome a letter and say, we're weak and aggrieved, sir. Please come to our defense. They'd go, why do we want to help a weak and aggrieved people? What can you do for the Roman Empire? Right. Um, but after Jesus Christ, you have to claim to be the meek. Right. And so now we have both sides that have can point to a litany of horrors and atrocities that they have suffered. Right. And we have both sides that uh, um, we can point to and say, wow, they've committed a litany of horror, horror and atrocities. So then, right. therefore, what do we as Christians do in the midst of this? Right. Well, I mean, you have to bear witness to the truth. And that's where, you know, when Paul says in Romans chapter one, I am I will not be ashamed of proclaiming the gospel. This is where this counts, right? Because, you know, a lot of people are unfortunately they may not see it this way, but they're ashamed of the gospel in the sense that I'll spit one out that's right over. I don't want to anger the left or maybe anger, you know, uh, you know, you know, different interests. And the conservative world, conservative ache, you know, and it's like, I'm sorry, but this is what that means when we talk about, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, right? That this is preached to the Jew and the Gentile. And he says that there in Romans. And we have to keep that in mind that the Christian, you know, true history is a Christian vocation, right? True history is taking account of the victims wherever they are, right? And, and just being, being honest about the record of history from the vantage point of the slain lamb since the foundation of the world. And so 
The only way propagandists can over to try to compete with that is to try to selectively distort through propaganda in real time and in propaganda in history the accounting of the victims, right? To say, look, it's just it's just pretty clear here that our side has been the true recipient of, of, of most of the victimization. There's a couple of mistakes we've made, yeah, we'll admit, but overall our side is the innocent slain lambs. Both sides in this conflict, like in any conflict, are using that same framework. And the Christian vocation is to say, look, I'm not going to pick a side here. we got to tell the truth. There are victims here on both sides. It doesn't mean you just wash your hands and do nothing, right? There's a right to self-defense, obviously. And the folks who did the horrible things to the people on October 7th, every one of those people should be brought to justice and, and killed, and, 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 and that shouldn't be able to continue anymore. Uh, and they got to figure out what was going on for seven hours or so that these folks were able to, I mean, these people, you know, uh, people in Palestine, children have been shot just walking the wrong way next to the some of these walls, but yet. You know, for seven hours, you've got people coming over with tractors and golf carts and flags and paragliders. Seven hours, that's a serious uh, breach of security here uh, on, a, on an epic scale for a country as secure. Yeah, Charlie as Kirk as of Turning Point USA bravely said, none of this makes sense. Like, it's, look, you don't want to say it, but it's just none of it makes sense. You know, and when we look at the Gulf of Tonkin and we look at, at, at the Korean War and we look at, you know, going back to the battleship Maine, there, you know, when there's these enthusiasms to war, we find out later on that we were lied to. And we should make a bigger deal about how often our governments have lied to us. You right. know, we're finding this out now with COVID and you and I were stuck in the middle of this. The CDC is slowly acknowledging ivermectin is useful against COVID. You can take COVID. We're not going to punish doctors for prescribing yeah. ivermectin. Uh, just last week, they released a report saying that the, the sh lockdowns were utterly counterproductive and destructive. And this isn't like a huge story. We're not having a massive conversation on this. Um, but then here we go again. Here we go again. And it's just really fishy. And I would say regardless, if this is, if this was something extremely nefarious that was allowed to happen to justify this brutal assault on Gaza, which if I'm a betting man, I actually would bet against it, and I can we can talk about that. Um, because at the end of the day, then Netanyahu was nailing himself to the cross. Uh, I guess either way, Netanyahu is responsible, right? If, if this was a false flag or if this was a massive collapse in intelligence and defense either way netanyahu um needs to be removed from power either way obviously uh if he's a criminal and this and he committed treason by willfully creating the circumstances to allow this horrible attack to happen he's he's he is a terrorist against his own people and a criminal so that if, if you believe that's what happened and you know a lot of people are questioning um, then he's a terrorist and a criminal, or it was just arrogance and they underestimated the creativity and will of their enemy. And if that's the case, then the nation state of Israel's very existence is in the balance. And then I would, I, I want to get to that, uh, David. Um, I want you to finish your point, but I do believe that the existence of Israel and the Jewish people is at play but I believe it's the Christian Zionists in the West that are pushing 
Israel off the cliff. And I want to get to that later. Um, but to your point, you're saying that you find it hard to believe that this could happen knowing how secure the border is and that there were hours and hours uh, went by before there was a response. Yeah, and I always assume the best motives of people when, I, when you write about these uh, very charged topics. So, I mean, I, I don't, I assume it was just a colossal failure. You know, that a, a country like Charlie Kirk mentions, you can get from a place to another place that, you know, it's not that big of a place like New Jersey. And you've got a seven hour window here where nobody is, is getting in there. It, it, you know, must be the biggest. Uh, dropping of the ball in their history here. So that's Definitely. what I assume. Yeah, it's a, Yahoo the is at the very least responsible yeah. for the v- biggest military blunder in the history right. of the state of Israel. Correct, yeah. That's what I assume here. But, and, and, but my point is just that, you know, people always say, well, you know, they started at first. And that's the whole point of what the gospel reveals or what Jesus talks about is that history is just one long example of a string of thematic reciprocal acts of violence and everybody perceives that they are the one who was aggressed upon first nobody believes Rene George said nobody acts out in violence or insult believing they initiated the mess they always we always we i will say me too right we always believe that we were aggressed upon first and that we're acting in, in just defense we always believe that. And the Christian is the one who receives the knowledge of the Lord, which allows us to stand and objectively look at the truth, no matter whether it makes our side look good or bad or whatever, and just tell the truth, right? Which is what gets exploited with this ideology you call victimism, where, you know, then we get into, you know, victim Olympics and, you know, shaming people and making people hate their skin color because someone that has a similar skin color did horrible things. Uh, that becomes an abuse of that, right? But it's but, but when it's done properly, the Christian stance is the true history. It's the only place where we get history. History as a vocation that actually is concerned with telling the facts, regardless of your tribal loyalties, that is something that only starts in the shadow of the cross. Because remember, what goes on there is a transition between two concepts of sacrifice in cult, right? You have the temple, the second temple that Jesus predicts over and over again is going to be destroyed. And that's his calling card. Every prophet, and he was not just a prophet, but he was a prophet. Every prophet that he is in the, in the, in the tradition of always had to make a public uh, prediction about a future event that would happen to validate the claims that they're making about themselves and their authority. And Jesus's vindication was that he kept saying, if you continue in your zealous spirit, which often motivates the terroristic elements of the Palestinian cause, right? We're occupied, therefore we have this zealous right to do whatever we want to do. No, you don't. Not when Christ is the judge of history. But that zealous spirit was animating his own people at the time. He kept saying, if you keep that zealous spirit where you think you're pure and you're aggrieved, and therefore, you know, Rome is this occupier that needs to be violently overthrown. If you keep that up, you will be destroyed and the temple will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on the other. He made that prediction and that was validated. His, his authority was validated and he was vindicated in 70 AD when Rome destroyed that temple. That temple represented collective tribal uh, identity as the means by which history was operating. 
What he also said was, I will be the new temple. My body as a human person will be the new temple. It will also be destroyed, but God will raise it up in vindication. So there's a transition between collectivism, the collective temples, collective ethno-nationalism as the governing agency of the world to human personhood, Christ, his human person as a temple. The temple is destroyed. God does not raise it. Jesus' temple was destroyed, and God reigns it, saying history is now going to be animated around the human person, not the collective structure of a temple. Man, this is good stuff. So, by the way, I want to go back to your point that, against you, you, there was a lot there. I want to unpack it. The, um, the idea that Christianity transcends tribalism, it's why Christians are always being martyred, right? Whenever there's a time of crisis— Christians become suspect. Is that fair to say? If they're authentically standing with those the community has turned against. Right. At which point they become suspect. Now, do you... Oh, go ahead. You're the killjoy. You're You're the killjoy? Literally. So do you, as somebody who reads Rene Girard... And he talks about this, this mimetic contagion, these enthusiasms to violence. Do you feel that through grace or just because Gerard does such a good job of unpacking it, that these contagions don't tug on you or do you still feel their violent tug? Oh, of course they, they, they tug on me a lot. You know, that's why, that's one of the things that makes, I, you know, I watch that stuff unfold and it was so you know looking at these bodies here and there and everywhere and the claims and it's all you don't know is you know they show a video they say oh no that happened in 2009 and then you know it's, oh, it's just like this chaos of social media you know and you're looking at that maelstrom and you get torn and vacillate and it's like you can feel the magnetic vortex like the energy vortex pulling you, the winds you know you get around i mean i have friends who are ardent zionists and right. i have friends who are, you know very skeptical of of the, you know, the Zionistic uh, narrative. Uh, And, you know, I have more friends because I'm a person who lives, uh, you know, in the South, and I know conservative Christians, more of my friends and and network are probably leaning towards more of the Christian Zionist approach. So, you know, it's always a comfortable feeling to kind of, like, let it wash over you and say, you know what, I don't really care. Okay, so... When, when I first Jesus. heard this happen, my first thought was, and I'm not kidding you, God, forgive me. I, my organization, VPP, has partners in Gaza. My first thought was yeah. turn Gaza into a parking lot. It was like a, just a satanic ejaculation. Right. Like, this is just how I felt. And then when I hear, I see some of the civilian casualty tolls in Israel, I, I feel violence in the other way. And, and it's yeah. just, you know, you can feel these contagion. I'm glad to hear you the same way, like, and I'm grateful for it, right? It's like you can feel them violently tugging you this way and yeah. that way, and you can see how easy we are to be swept away. And you talked yeah. about Christian Zionists. I don't know about you, but I find Christian Zionists insufferable and impossible to forgive. God forgive me. You know, I, I like you. I have a lot of Palestinian friends. We're going to have a Palestinian friend on following you, and then I'm going to have a, an Israeli friend following him. And in the show, those shows are going to be on how to talk about this war with your Palestinian friends, with a friend who's Palestinian, and with your Jewish friends, with a friend from Israel. Those are going to be the two shows following you. And I'm going to have tough cool. questions. Um, I'm going to have tough questions for both of them. 
But I don't see my Jewish friends um, or my Muslim friends posting such childish and outlandish calls to genocide as I see coming from Christian Zionists. Is it that just my Christian Zionist friends are kooks, or do you see the same sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I think in general, the loudest voices for some of the most vicious stuff, unfortunately, I've heard it from Americans uh, rather than Israelis. Uh, and, I, and I think also, with, like you said, some of the Christian Zionist type uh, folks, you know, they're, they're, they're really, really entrenched in that. And I don't, I don't know, I, I, think it's, I think it's something that we have to be very, very mindful of. Why do you, what, why, I mean, why do you think that is? It's, is this the desire to their poor theology has sort of told them that this is acceptable so they just let the bloodlust rip? Yeah. Because they advocate for violence that they would have never advocated in response to an attack on the United States. Right. And they, and they, don't, they don't even flinch at when they hear the staggering civilian casualty rates, I think 1% of Gaza has now been killed. 3,000 children. Um, you know, that would have to be, what, 300? That would be the equivalent of, like, 3.2 million Americans dead. Wow. Um, 300,000 children. And they don't even flinch at this. Um, coming from a, a, the perspective of reading Rene Girard or how Rene Girard sort of exemplifies and explains Christian anthropology and victimism. Like, what do you, what do you think, why do you think it is that uh, Christian Zionists are so shameless in promoting brutality against Christians in, in many cases, because there are so many Christians still in Gaza, um, you know, and, and Semitic people like the Palestinians, if you follow their, you know, the history, you look at their DNA, they're from a people that have been there forever Many of them descend directly from those Jews who became the first Christians that were literally the families around Jesus and James. Right. Um, so it's startling, right? Yeah, you know, it's um, it's one of those things where, you know, I, here's, the, here's the way I look at it. It's like you look at the way they interpret, and I know this gets a little bit into more like eschatology, but that's really what you're talking about. The, the eschatology has shaped so much of, of this discourse of the Christian conservatives in America. But when you look at, you know, like uh, Revelation and some of the interpretation that folks like uh, Darby, you know, brought to the, the you know, the, the four, brought all those things depict Jesus as as kind of coming as this violent, avenging warrior who's going to defeat the enemies of God uh, through, you know, violent uh, defeat. But the, the point is, is the, the gospel says that Christ defeats the uh, the powers of the cross, of the cross, the, the nonviolent show and exposing the impotence of the uh, culture myth-making that is sacrificial violence. Jesus exposes it, and he defeats it. First Corinthians talks about that. Why the nations wouldn't have done what they did, the powers wouldn't have done what they did if they knew what Jesus was doing by allowing them to kill him on the cross, that they were destroying their own power. And that's one of the first sermons that Peter gives. He talks about why do the nations rage, which is, incidentally, that's the passage that's referenced 
uh, at the end of uh, the book of Revelation at 19, when, it, when they, they misinterpret and they interpret Jesus as coming back as just as another pagan vengeful warrior, as if his message and his whole life is somehow not sufficient enough to defeat the powers. Uh, yeah, so it's, they think back. that the, Jesus, the, the Messiah that the, the, the Pharisees were hoping to arrive will come just later. He, you know, it's like he pl- plays a switcheroo on him. Yeah, which which is weird because think about this. Case. It's very You're weird. Still- it's very weird. Everything about it's so it's it's antichrist to me. I mean, I think of Christian Zionism. It's literally the denial of the true Christ. Right, because I want to ask you this: You're a filmmaker, so you're going to be good to ask for this. So, like, you know, you know about the hero's journey and the Christ the Christ archetype that is a part of. Oh, wait till you read cinema. my new book. Yeah, you're going to love it. It's I have an introduction to young people in my new book that talks about the hero's journey and where they are in this, in this journey. But, but here, here's my question though. You know, the way that the Christian, uh, you know, folks that read this stuff this way, the way they make Jesus out to be, it's, it, it's like the reversal of the hero's journey. Like what, what, like every top box office movie, Star Wars, Avengers, whatever. Oh, that's brilliant. Starts off Whoa. with the, is forgiving, merciful, gracious, and self-sacrificing, and then at the end, he's vengeful, violent, vindictive. What movie starts? Yeah, I want to break this that- down for people who don't know the hero's journey. That is, re- I was like, where is he going with this? I, you know, people bring up the hero's journey a lot. I go, where is David going with this? This is going to be pretty lame. That's what I was thinking, and then that was extremely profound. Okay, so guys, the hero's journey is when the hero starts um, flawed then suffers an injustice, and then through answering the hero's call, which most people just hang up the phone, but through answering the call to sort of respond to this injustice, they have to first fix what's wrong with themselves, um, suffer sort of a death and resurrection, and then um, they make the world a better place, and they're a better person for it. And what we're doing is we're saying that, that Christ came to change the world, but then at the very end undoes everything that changed. That is so profound that it's like really like untying the, the, and and, you know, the Christian Zionism, I think it really had its growth um, in the rise. Well, you know, after the catastrophe of World War II and the Holocaust, also with the founding of the nation state of Israel, it sort of pointed, you know, to the, the um, story that was being told by Darby, a new story that was created in the, I believe in the uh, early 19th century and um, didn't exist anywhere in Christendom prior to this, this Englishman uh, in like the 1830s inventing this idea, but it was in response to the catastrophe of the Holocaust. uh, It seemed to solve the quote unquote Jewish problem that Europeans had obsessed on Jewish and Gentile. Um. And so I think a lot of it comes from this genuine desire to the Christian Zionist is on the hero's journey. Obviously they're, they're responding to grave injustices that were true and tragic, not just in the 20th century, but throughout the history of Christendom. Um, and, but they don't understand that this bizarre new ideology, I want to, you know, heresy, I won't even call it a heresy. It's almost as if it's a new religion, undoes the gospel completely. Right, it does. And specifically um, because it denies Jesus Christ as the third temple. Right, right. 
I mean, it literally denies that Jesus Christ is at their temple. And if you are a Christian, Catholic, mainline Protestant, anything that has roots that go earlier than the 19th century, um, you recognize and understand that Jesus Christ is the third temple and the church is the mystical body of Christ on earth. This is transcends denominations until Darby. And this idea that I don't know if Darby believed this, maybe you know, but this idea that uh, is preached by mega prosperity gospel pastors today, these mega churches, is the idea that Jesus, uh, the Jews don't even need Jesus. Right. Which is so right. strange because like I think Darby. Like a two oh, go ahead. They call it two covenant theology. And they say that the, it's basically two terms of agreement for uh, two sets of people. And, uh, you know, there's the terms that, that God gives covenantally through Christ for the rest of the world. And then there's the terms that He set up for the, the, the people, the Jewish people. And that, that covenant, basically, the terms still apply exactly as they started. And it's like, well, what the heck? What does that mean? Jesus came for the Jew and the Gentile. The Bible says it all over the place. He, he it couldn't even do nothing is more clear in Paul's letters than that point. Yeah. yeah. Right? Nothing is more clear. I, I can't yeah. think of anything more clear in the New Testament than that Christ came for the Jew and the Gentile. And boy, did they fight that out in the early years of the church. Yeah. It's because so, that was that was an uncomfortable marriage of two different worldviews coming together. And that was difficult, but that was the best family that God had in mind that has taken over the world. And yet so many people here in America are stuck to something which is very ashamed of that gospel in some sense, whether they're aware of it or not. And we want to be gracious because you can be very loving and wonderful people and still have these terrible ideas, but they do need to have a reckoning, right? Like history needs to move on from these false rejections of the gospel because it's doing people a great deal of harm on so many different sides of these issues. And it's, it's just, I have not been charitable to people with this. You know, the one thing that sends me over the edge, it's happened at a few little neighborhood gatherings as of late, since the catastrophe in early October was when people just casually compare the people of Gaza to the Amalek. Yeah. 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 They do that a lot. Which is, satanic really which is literally advocating genocide right well you know that's the whole point too not just the not just the dispensationalists but there's a lot of different currents in christianity that whatever you present the beautiful truth of jesus's life and its ethical implications for Desiring mercy, not sacrifice, and not resisting violence with more violence, but, uh, you know, not letting go of vengeance and all these things. They like to just kind of put it to the side and then take, you know, passages about Joshua and all these other, you know, eliminating the Canaanites and all these things and kill the children. And they elevate that above the work of, of Christ on the cross. And it's like, wait a second, you know, the Bible's clear that when you've seen Jesus, you've seen the fullness of the character of God the Father, right? That's that God really, truly, that's his final statement about who he is. If you want to know him, follow and imitate Jesus's life, his disposition to his enemies even. And it's not, you know, that word is the final word, not Joshua. You know, Joshua and Moses, those are subordinate to the example of Christ. And that's why when we say 
you know, that we are followers of the word. We follow a living human being, not just a, a kind of flat, modernistic view of a text that gets distorted into all kinds of different errors. Uh, that's actually an idolatry against Jesus, right? And that's another story. Well, no, and do you notice in the Catholic Church's readings in the past two weeks, there's a lot of Joshua and then the New Testament's response to it. And you see that a lot, right, where you, to me the saddest verse in Scripture is in Ecclesiastes when Solomon says, I looked over the entire world and all I see is oppression, and on the side of the oppressed is no one, and on the side of the oppressor is power. Well, that's not true anymore. Right. That's not true anymore. That's a very sad thing to hear. Um, but that changed with Jesus Christ. So now on the side of the oppressed, and this is where we get victimism from, because it has to, that's the jujitsu move, is Christ and is the church. But we as um, Christians really have to be in this age, we have to be, we have to be nimble judo players, right? We have to be nimble wrestlers because we're being pushed and pulled and tugged in every direction. So here we are, David, we are Christians. We are Americans, most of us here listening. We are citizens of a constitutional republic. Our government has given money to Iran. Of course, lots of money to Israel. We've given money to the Palestinians, to Gaza. Um, So we, as a constitutional republic, as citizens in a constitutional republic, are so intertwined in this catastrophe. Weapons that were abandoned by the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan were in the hands of terrorists that killed Holocaust survivors. You can't make this is unbelievable stuff. So we're intertwined in this. And we we want to say and do something we feel obligated to because, in fact, we are obligated to because our government using our taxpayer dollars has been, you know, in and out of this since before Israel was a state. Um, what is a Christian to do? What is an American citizen to say or to do in the midst of, the, you know, the Christian Zionists have an easy answer. The, the, um, those marching for the Palestinians um, have an easy answer. But on both sides, we see those marching for the Palestinians and decrying civilian casualties smirk and chuckle and have no, uh, no problem, seemingly, with Jewish kids afraid to walk across Harvard Yard. Uh, I've brought that up a lot in this podcast. We're probably sick of hearing it. But the idea that American kids, Jewish kids, are scared to walk across their campus, to me, is frightening. The idea that those who would claim they're marching for civilians, the innocent in Gaza, would harass uh, the innocent civilians, children, Americans, right, in American campuses um, is unbelievable. And just as it's equally reprehensible that, um, you know, the middle class white guy who drives his new car to his cubicle uh, on his phone has no problem whipping his phone out and... um, you know, tweeting or Xing or whatever we call it, uh, turn Gaza into a parking lot. And then the, uh, the kid in Harvard has no problem whipping out his phone and saying, uh, tweeting to the river to the sea. So then where do we, what do we do here? What do we do? The good news is I figured this out, David. Whatever we do is going to alienate most everybody, which is a place I'm comfortable. Right. But, you know, so well, what are we to do? What is a Christian to do in the midst of this have- catastrophe? There's a lot of things to do. First, we gotta, we gotta, you know, in my opinion, we need to stop intervening and, and playing 
playing both sides and playing the worst out in both sides and many times through this conflict uh, of arming both sides and, and, you know, intervening in that way. I don't think that's appropriate. I think the non-interventionist approach when it comes to this is important politically, although there's no appetite for that. So that's another, you know. Wait, say, say that one more time. You know, say that one more time. Uh, what? That there's no appetite for non-interventionism and stopping, you know, arming right. both sides. You know, we are, you know, we spend so much money to the cutter, and the cutter sends all that to Hamas, and then, oh my goodness, we got to get rid of these monsters and what? You knew what you were doing. And by the way, we told Cutter to do that. That's the game, right? We tell Cutter to do this, to do that, to host these people, to those people, and then our politicians berate them. It's an absolute joke. And I think I think we need to have a. I think Christians need to have an honest uh, conversation like what we're having about the record of misinformation and disinformation, and more importantly, the body count of dispensational ideology. It needs to get challenged and repudiate. We need to repudiate this heresy out of the church in every corner to get rid of that because that's blinding people and it's and it's morally deforming people because you get into this stupidity where you're blinding your eyes to the victims that need to have their voices heard. Now, when you get to the point of what to do in this acute conflict, I think you got to work with people like the stuff that you do. I don't know what you're doing in this particular. I know you're everywhere around all the conflict zones, but whether you're doing it or somebody else like you to get aid to the victims and both sides to make sure that the folks who are kidnapped, uh, the Israelis get home safely, uh, and that their captors are, are brought to justice, uh, and that, you know, uh, the same thing goes, well, you know, it's, it's a little harder on that one, but, you know, to get the folks, the kids who are in Gaza, think about this. This is the thing that I, I want people to really ask, okay? Given what we know, because this is not conspiracy at all, we know that America has been funding Hamas through Qatar and other places for a long time. We know that Israel's stated political interest, they've been saying they wanted Hamas funded, and they've been funding Hamas, not the more secular, more moderate Palestinian governments for some time. So if all those billions of dollars are going to Hamas from America and Israel and others, Qatar, if you're an average person in Gaza who doesn't want anything to do with this stuff and you don't want Hamas, how are you in any way, shape, or form, you know, how is it morally justified to kill that Gazan civilian because of something that America and Israel put on the map, funded, and put in power? You know, like, this didn't happen. That in is another powerful point. When you line up Netanyahu's comments that we, if we, we need to support Hamas, then flash forward that the civilians in Gaza are not innocent because they've supported Hamas. That's how, diabolical. How they, it's absolutely diabolical. How are they going to replace Hamas if, when Hamas is flush with American and Israeli cash for decades? How? By what means? By what channel? What moderate force has been funded to the tune of billions to to give the moderates in Gaza who just want to leave, live peaceful lives uh, uh, an ability to say no to Hamas. So, so you see what I mean? Their whole, the, the fog of war is BS is what it's doing, right? Because it's like, oh, they, they wanted Hamas. No, Israel's government and America and Qatar, and maybe some factions in Gaza wanted Hamas. But there's a lot of folks who never had any financial 
ability to say no to this terrorist group who foisted upon them by Machiavellian forces who thought it to be more politically expedient. And that's BS to say, well, you could, you know, those little kids and their families that are getting killed, they should have left to where? You know, this is their homeland for generations. They've lived here and, and, and they're not bothering anybody. They're just living their lives. They don't have any means to say, hey, you know what? Hamas has gotten billions from Israel and America and Qatar. Wow, I think we should have a, a moderate group that's, that just kicks Hamas out. That sounds like a good idea. Well, then how is this going to unfold? I mean, they can't destroy Hamas, right? I mean, the only way that they can destroy Hamas is if they take this opportunity to utterly ethnically cleanse Gaza yeah. and, and bring up ethnically cleansing and not, and not to kick Israel where they're, where they're wounded. But Israel funded the ethnic cleansing of Artsakh by Azerbaijan. And that's a fact. So Christians from Artsakh were ethnically cleansed. They lived there since prehistory. They've been Christians for over 1,700 years with the support of Israel. And Christians didn't seem to care about that at all. I mean, one of the oldest Christian communities on earth was just cleansed this month. And ironically, Israel f- provided the weapons, and then Hamas cheered it when it happened. We so that to was Johnny. Was John Hagee doing a big televangelist marathon for the Armenians there? Yeah, no, I bet not. Because the Armenians, yeah. Isn't that strange? So for those of you who are just, your head's going to explode, you need to know that advertising works, that influence campaigns work. And you are concerned about what you are told to be concerned about. And so you're not being told to be concerned about Christians in Artsakh or Christians in Iraq or Syria. Um you're not being told to worry about the Christians that descend from the first century Christian church in Gaza. And so you're not. But we need to be thoughtful, right? We need to go against our own inclinations. And when you're a Christian, you just unfortunately will never get the joy of just letting it rip and diving in headfirst into a satanic Luciferian um, enthusiasm for, for vengeful violence. It's just that's not something we get to participate. That's a water slide we don't get to go down on anymore. That's right. We can't do it. There's no reason to give in to that anymore. Satan cannot cast out Satan anymore. And now Satan is so on the run because of the power of Christ and the knowledge of the Lord spreading around the world, even as we reject the ethics and the metaphysics of Christianity, the knowledge of the victim continues to penetrate every part of the globe, and now Satan has to hide and paint himself as a lamb more and more to try to continue to revivify his playbook, and it's going to continue to fail because technology is becoming more and more decentralized, and as people become exposed to the slain lambs that are inconvenient on their enemy other's tribe, that's going to dissolve the ability of these propaganda machines to work and function and creating the justification for collective violence. And so that's how Christ is winning in history. It would win a lot easier if Christians would actually follow Christ on a lot more of a, you know, serious, you know, deal. But that's such a profound that's- insight, David, though, what you're saying is that like Hamas is like, look at me, sir. I'm an innocent little lamb who's been wronged. And the IDF is like, Look at me, sir. I'm an innocent little meek lamb, and it's right. it's hysterical. But who who are who, who who are the meek? Who are the lamb? Those peace activists. Could you think of any 
more perfect scapegoat to, to a violent cat catastrophe. These poor, beautiful, young, hopeful, naive Jewish kids that were slaughtered. And, th and then you think of the 3,000 Palestinian children who have been killed right. since August and uh, since October 7th. I mean, the, right. so you, we have to stand with both of them. And guess what? When you do that, both teams want to spit in your face. Both well, teams want to scourge you at the pillar. Both teams want to put a crown of thorns smashed into your face. And both teams want to nail you to a cross, both sides. I don't want to call them teams. Well, I just heard uh, Axelrod refer to them as teams and it repulsed me. And I just repeated what he said. Um, what we what we should do, though, you know, Christians should do this literally or, you know, figuratively, but literally is fine, too, is that Christians should be doing, you know, revivals or tent meetings or whatever around the country right now with the faces of the victims on the Palestinian side and the Israeli side and bringing some of their, you know, loved ones' comments to the stage or whatever and say, you know what, we're going to be stand with the victims no matter who they are and say this, this endless blood feud must stop on all sides, no more playing footsies and, and playing both sides of America where you fund Hamas and you fund Israel and you get to profit off of the, you know, this, this kind of continual carnage through the, through the years. Enough with this. You're not standing with Israel the way we're going. This isn't standing for anybody. And no more playing games, Palestinian leftists who try to act like, you know, oh, this is what colonialism looks like when you're raping and, and mutilating you know, young women and grandmothers and children, that's not at all something that should ever be normalized. Exactly. Both of those dialectic has to end. The only way it ends is when Christians have the courage to say, you know what, I don't care about book deals. I don't care about like whatever. I'm going to be an advocate of the gospel. And that means you stand up for the victims and you let people see them and let people hear them. Because guess, guess what, Jason, you know, I, I was over breaking bread with Zionists in Israel and, and Palestinians years ago, and it, it helped me, con, you know, concretize my views. You know, when I'm hanging out with a Palestinian Christian in Bethlehem, and he's showing me how he's doing his woodworking on olive wood, making a beautiful sculpture. And well, he says, you see that there? He says, that's Jerusalem. My family's been here for generations, and I'm not allowed to go and step on the footsteps where Christ stood. Can you imagine, and on that note, I want to let you know, guys, for people who are listening, you asked what we're doing, David. We are doing this. We've secured vulnerable synagogues in Africa exposed to Islamist attacks immediately following the October 7th attack. We, um, we are hiring. If you go to thegreatcampaign.org and become a monthly donor of $25 or more a month, you will get a cross an olive wood cross that's made by families in Bethlehem, families that were that were making their living um, through tourists and pilgrims that don't exist anymore because of the war. So VPP reached out to them. We want to keep them busy. So, um, you know, we're very much engaged. And I want to go to your point when you have, in the next week, we're going to have on a guest who's Palestinian and a guest who's Jewish, and we're going to talk about how to talk about this with your Palestinian friends, with a Palestinian, with your Jewish friends, with a Jew. Here's the reality, right? The mother who loses her child into this rubble is going to be the most easy person for Hamas to whip into an enthusiasm of hatred against the Israelis. That Israeli 
um, brother who lost his sister, whose sister was raped and murdered by Hamas, is going to be the easiest prey to be swept away into a violent contagion. In fact, I saw a young man who said, I've been committed to peace no more. What they did to my brother, I'm committed no more. Isn't it hard when, like you said, we want to stand with the victims on both sides, but those who are the victims on both sides are being swept away against the other. That's the real challenge, isn't it? So we're going to be standing with people who hate the others we're standing with. Yes, we are. It's not, it's not going to be a quick fix, but it's the only position that uh, Christians are obligated to pursue, you know, and, and to pursue it with their heart, soul, and mind, pursue it with their uh, word and, and bearing witness uh, to that which, uh, you know, Jesus came to vindicate, which is every human person. And that it's not just, Jason, it's not just that we stand with every victim uh, in a conflict. But, but what Christ does is he reorients the society to the human person. Because when we, when, we, when we love each human being as individual human persons, as sacred, right? That's where we start to get a different ethical framework and say, you know what? If you love your human neighbor and your human person, that means you don't have the right to just ignore their personhood and kill them as collateral damage. You just can't. You have to stand for uh, the, the sanctity of like what you, you talked about with the, the pro-life movement. But that human personhood is essential to what Jesus accomplished in history, moving our world from this collectivist orientation as the temple represented and then moving it to the human person as his body, his temple reflects. And that's, you know, that changes, you know, your, your, what you're allowed to, you know, hide your eyes from. You can't avert your eyes. That's the key. Mythology requires you to avert your eyes. You know, all these mega churches that say, rah, rah, we are on the side of, of the angels because of what, we stand for, wait a second, let's see the actual victims. Let's let people see their faces. And that is a technology in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, you look you look at the victims and 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 to your point, both sides are myth making, right? The Palestinian yeah. side is myth making, Iran is myth making, Israel's myth making, and both sides are just spilling lies. When my, both sides are spilling Machiavellian lies, but we don't have to undo every lie. We don't. The good news is we don't have to sit here and wade through who's saying what because, to your point about Gerard, well, that's the history of violence in the world. You know, well, I was wronged first. I was wronged first. Both sides in this dispute can point to serious wrongs. What? What grandmother? Let me put it this way: You know when Jesus says, "Let he who is without sin cast the first stone," and he just and he breaks up the collective mind of the, the crowd that wants to murder this woman accused of adultery, right? He says, "Who's going to cast the first stone?" And that makes every person think about: Was well, it going to be me, or is it going to be Bill, or Bob over there? Bob's pretty dirty. I know him. Who's going to be the one to throw the stone first? Now you're taking personal agency and your participation in violence, and that's how he. He, he kind of cast the spirit of the crowd out of each person who was there to kill this woman and their zeal, right? So when you're in a megachurch that's got a zeal for, oh, we're standing for Israel in this cause, 
you know, which of those grandmothers would pull the trigger and cast a stone to blow up uh, uh, a refugee camp where you know there's going to be little girls looking, you know, look at those little girls, you know, no grandmother, most grandmothers, <laughs> if they know, but no, no grandmother that's sitting in John Hagee's church getting ecstatic about this misinterpretation of, of eschatology and getting, you know, they're swept up in victimism and they're thinking of Anne Frank and all these powerful emotions that are true and real. But when you see that little Palestinian girl walk on stage and say, let he cast, who's going to cast the first missile to blow that child up in the refugee camp? Who will be it? Will it be you, Margaret? Will it be you stand up and press the button? They can't do it, right? Most people who are following Christ can't do it when they see what they're actually doing. And that's why Jesus knows how to use social Aikido, as he does in the story of the woman accused of adultery, to get people out of that possession of the crown spirit. We have to imitate his same social Aikido with our neighbor, whether it's a little old grandmother. And people are possessed right now, right? I mean, they're being swept away. Um, and And I guess, though, we have to understand, and I am really uncharitable to Christian Zionists at dinner parties. Like, really, I just... I God forgive me. I go to parties. I put on this little wristband. My buddy Boss Rutten said, "When you have a bad habit, you put it on, and when you know you're about to do the bad habit, snap yourself." You know, and uh, man, I, I I've practically uh, severed my right hand because um, it's so hard for me to just sit there and listen to people spew heresy that their own religious denomination doesn't teach about the rebuilding the third temple and this and that. And then to excuse the massive casualties for civilians. And I want to say this. We're not utopian pacifists. At least I'm not. The state of Israel has the duty and obligation to hunt down, capture, and kill those terrorists responsible for this atrocity. Netanyahu himself said this is a war for civilization. Well, then one should act civilized. And I'm not saying it's going to make it easy. And I'm not going to say there wouldn't be more uh, military casualties. Jason, but, here's how it's here's how it's easy. Stop funding Hamas since the 1970s. Yeah, yeah, that's that would have helped. That would have really helped in a very easy way. Hunt down and kill these terrorists. You know, it is like to not put them on the back. Yeah, yeah, that, that's kind of helpful. Yeah. And that's why elections are important, right? I mean, that's why um, it's interesting that you look at Donald Trump and a guy who I really was heartbroken when he won the nomination in 2016. Um. <laughs> But he demonstrated that he was repulsed. Remember when he was asked about Putin killing some some political adversary, and he, he looked. He said, "What? Yeah. We don't kill people. You don't think we kill people? What? You think yeah. we're innocent? You know, you can look." And Steve Bannon today on the War Room um, was breaking down like how James Baker, you know, worked to keep the CCP's grip on power after worked with China to keep the CCP's grip on power after the Tiananmen Square massacre. Yeah. It's it's quite grotesque. It's it's really it's really quite grotesque. But that I asked you this question earlier and I think I cut you off. Then how do you think this is going to play out if Hamas was if not created, funded and sustained by the United States right. and Israel? How their destruction would be undesirable unless the goal is just to completely push the Palestinians out of Gaza, then they won't need Hamas anymore. Right. So where do you... 
two million people? How are you going to get two million people out of there? That's not, that's not, I don't think that's realistic, is it? Well, I mean, in three weeks, we've killed 1% of the population. Yeah, but look how much pushback they've got. Once you get to the million person is killed point, I don't think that's going to be sustainable. <laughs> so a millionth? Yeah, praise God, not. Hope not. What I'm saying, like, what number? I don't, I mean, this is pretty gruesome stuff, right? But this is the sausage making of wicked, satanic Machiavellianism, right? right. Of all, we're not picking on any particular government. I mean, it's like, if you're going to say, we're going to settle this problem once and for all, I mean, I mean, I, I had a guy on who was talking, Chris Bray is a writer at Substack, and he was saying, well, sometimes overwhelming violence can, uh, you know, stop the problem. And I'm like, I don't think that's going to happen here, because at what point, if they're already getting this much slack uh, around the world and politically here at home, uh, with the left up in arms saying we're not going to vote for Biden and all this, uh, how much of that is going to be sustainable when you go from 1% to 20% or two, let's just say 5%? You know, look, as I'm just saying, 5% of civilians in Gaza are now dead. Oh, and we're going to hit that mark. Yo, we're going to hit that mark. Yeah, we will hit that mark. There's just no doubt. So? Yes, we will hit the 5%. I mean. When are they going to hit that? What do you think? I don't know about. Next like, three or four months. I mean, yeah, it's yeah. You're, you start looking at disease and illness and, um, you know, they don't have water is very important to health and hygiene. Uh, then, medicine, well, insulin, how many people are there with diabetes? Um, the, more, the more the algorithms on social media allow the reality of that 5% figure to be depicted, the more outrage and blowback uh, politically is going to happen, right? And so I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think they could get past 5%, 10%, I don't even know. I mean, I don't know what, this is gruesome to even think about, but it's, uh, this is what it's about. I mean, I don't know, with 1% killed, as you're saying, and they've got this much pushback already, I don't know how, how much they can sustain politically to keep going to 5%. Or well, more, you would you hope know? that we're, we're at, our, I mean, I am hope, I would hope that we're at the end of our rope. I, I It seems the Israelis are getting more tired of it than the, the, the Christian Zionists. So the Israelis are repulsed by this violence. Um, Netanyahu is not a popular guy. I mean, they were, they were on the brink of a civil war. I did a podcast three weeks before the catastrophe on, on Israel being on the brink of a civil war, and the largest protest in the history of Israel was scheduled for the week after the terrorist attack. I don't know if you knew about that. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and Netanyahu's government was in, is, was in shambles and in peril. So I don't know. I you know I maybe the Israelis will tire, and this is why I tell my Christian Zionist friends. I've gotten big heated arguments. I'm like, you are apologizing and enabling really horrible behavior that will lead to the Israel ceasing to exist. There are almost two billion Muslims in the world, fourteen million Jews, and I do believe the nation state of Israel. I'm not a Christian Zionist, but I believe the state of Israel exists. I see it as part of the post-Ottoman collapse world and reality. I think it's very sad in the Middle East that Jews and Alawites and and Hazara are not saved. And this is the other reason why I don't buy the Muslim world's heartbreaking over the treatment of the Palestinians when Iran brutalizes the Hazara, Turkey's shelling the Kurds, you know, uh, the, all the Gulf states are apologizing for China's genocide of the Uyghur. Come on. Give me a break. There's 3 million Uyghurs in concentration camps. 
and Saudi can't can't bat an eyelash, can't can't mumble a word in support of the Uyghur. And you want me to think? No, I believe that um, Israel and the Palestinians are proxies that are used for by powerful players for other interests. As Biden said in 1988, if Israel didn't exist, we would have to create it. Um, And the Israelis and the Palestinians, if they want a beautiful future, it's going to be a shared future where they wall themselves off of the meddling of people from the outside. And so to your point, if we really care about Israel, if we really care about the Palestinians, we'll stop funding both sides of the violence. And well, it, 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 there needs to be more. Uh, there needs to be a reckoning, and I don't know how to do it. But there needs to be more of an internal debate within the Christian conservative world about the, the errors that got us here. Because unfortunately, that same dispensationalism has been used uh, to justify a lot of other really bad foreign policy decisions like Iraq and so forth. Always under the same context. Saddam Hussein is the Canaanite today. Assad is the Amalekite. You know, it's always this distorted, bizarre... Right. Yet, uh, yet Assad was all that stood between the Christians of Syria and ISIS liquidating them. And I had to listen to dimwits, Christians, advocate for the toppling of Assad. Even the head of the Israeli Defense Force at the time, who was advocating toppling Assad, said we have to admit this will be the end of Christians in Syria. 800,000 Christians will cease to exist in Syria. And then yeah, I have to... Al-Qaeda and Al-Nazra and you know, ISIS and all this stuff, you know, and that's because of this, again, this this kind of... Because, you know, the conservative movement would otherwise be relatively non-interventionist if it didn't have this kind of mutated uh, false version of Christianity animating so much of their emotions and too bad. You know, someone who could play a big role in tamping down this right now, if he wanted to do it, would be Donald Trump, right? He already doesn't like Netanyahu. He doesn't like Netanyahu anymore, right? So if he if he were to use his bully pulpit to advocate for a, a ceasefire and some kind of a peaceful resolution quickly, that would add to, you know, the pressure on Biden because, you know, you know from a political standpoint, Biden's losing a lot of Democratic uh, leftists in Arab, you know, Arab Americans are in Michigan, which is a key key state for Biden to, to win. You know, they're they're dropping dramatically their support for the Democrat Party and Biden. And if Trump wanted to play real politic in that way, he could say, "Look, that Yahoo, you know, he's I told you this guy, he's no good because look what he's, you know, he's he stabbed me in the back, and this guy, you know, he's going too far with this. We need to bring this to a ceasefire." And as the front runner, front runner of the GOP uh, nomination, that would do a lot to quell the war fervor that uh, animates along the party, right? Because they they're they're here to ride or die with Trump along the base, the majority of the base of, uh, of the Republican Party. And if he says, "Hey, let's put a ceasefire into this. This is this is going too far," just like he said, if he if he said the same thing he said with Ukraine, right? He said, "Let's just stop the killing." Oh, that would be perfect. You know, maybe I'll do an open letter to Donald Trump. Yeah, um, he says killing but, in Israel will he will get he will accomplish his own Trumpian logic, which is to get payback politically to Netanyahu, right? Because he feels that Yahoo really sold him out by, uh, you know, going ahead and going with Biden before the, the the votes were fully counted and 
you know, he had disputed, you know, he was disputing the election in, in, in that famous moment where he had Netanyahu um, uh, on speakerphone in the White House, remember? And he said, you couldn't have gotten all these things we did for you if Biden, if that old Biden was in the White House. That's right. right. Uh, well, but it's interesting to see what he'll do because Bannon seems to have swung to the pro-interventionist side when it comes to Israel. Who's that? Steve Bannon. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know why. So, yeah, I mean, I mean, I think Bannon recognizes and people recognize rightly. Tulsi Gabbard is the same way, right? Tulsi has swung really pro-interventionist on this. And I think well, it's like what the details are. Like, what do you say? Does that yeah. mean like I'm interested in the sense of I want the Hamas people who are mutilating people to be stopped? And, absolutely and, destroyed. And, yes. What's that? No, yeah, we want to see them absolutely destroyed. And it was yeah. ISIS like unimaginably speakably horrible behavior. Yeah. Um no, so I mean, it's it's I, gonna I, be interesting to see how you know what it is? I, I think at the end of the day, it's just when it comes to Bannon, and maybe this is what's going to happen with Trump, they see they're really American firsters to the, like, nth degree. And what I mean by this is, if I'm thinking about Bannon, Bannon, is, and, and this is why he liked Trump. You know, Steve's a friend of mine. We talked about Trump, and I said, this guy's not a conservative, and Bannon's like, you're right, he's a nationalist. He just cares about Americans. And so a guy like Steve looks at Russia-Ukraine, says that's Europe's problem. The only way it becomes America's problem if we meddle in it. So let it play out. Let Europe solve its own problems. Meanwhile, you look at what's happening in Israel with Hamas. Well, that's America's problem too because these Islamists mean to do us harm. So let's partner with Israel to, 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 to destroy our enemies. So I could see this sort of like it's, it's not a Christian Zionist argument. I, I, I can't see Steve buying into any of that nonsense, although he might see it as useful. Um, but just as an American firster, you know, um, the Islamists are our enemy. They are a real threat to our security. They are a real threat to Americans at home and abroad. Yeah, but I mean, but again, so why would you so help Netanyahu, who has been putting Hamas Islamists on the map in Palestine for a long time? Doesn't make any sense. For, for, you know, there was actual Christians, Christian Palestinians were involved with the governance of a lot of the, and I'm not an expert on this, but just talking to the folks who are, learned a little bit that a lot, there was actually Christian Palestinians representing the governance of the Palestinian uh, territories uh, for some time with uh, the, the Palestinian Authority, and, and it was more, it was more of a moderate secularist uh, tinge to some of that. And they didn't want, uh, you know, even uh, Arafat, he did not want to make it about Islam versus uh, Judaism or Christ, you know, Christianity or Judaism versus Islam. He didn't want to make it religious, although there were a lot of folks that wanted him to go that way. He wanted to keep it as a, a more of a secular, like anti-colonial type framework that I guess, you know, the left was, you know, the new left, particularly in the 60s and 70s, was big on that. And that still bore fruit. Today's left is really, you know, pro-Palestinian on this. And I think I'm not saying one. I don't. I'm not saying what ideology is perfect or another. But I'm just saying they, you know, this idea that Palestine is filled with millions of radical Islamists. It's really not 
we see. You know, the, the Christians have their churches. They're, 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 you know, ISIS was just is destroying those churches in, in, in Syria, right? The the, the Saint Porfirios in Gaza has been there for a long, long time. Hasn't been bombed, from what I understand, uh, by the Palestinians. I, and even the Islamists amongst them didn't do it. So there's lots of churches, church, you know, Christian uh, communities that have been uh, unbothered by uh, their Palestinian neighbors in the West Bank. So this idea that they're like a bunch of ISIS people. Oh, no, no. Well, what I'm saying to you, just where I, I'm not saying that's correct. I'm saying yeah, I, I believe that's just probably where Bannon and maybe Trump will fall down at i think that they might just yeah. arrive at uh, by the way it happened you know i'd lobbied hard for the uyghurs in 2016 2017 2018 in the trump administration and a lot of people in the administration at first were like look there you know there is they're muslims they're islamists they're the enemy of the west if china is waging war against the enemies of the west then um why should we meddle in it why should we care why let's just stay out of it and then and, um, you know, I had to do a lot of work to explain to people that the, uh, these aren't, the Uyghurs are not Islamists. They are, you know, they're not easy, an easily radicalized community. And there were a few instances in which Chinese intelligence lured some poor Uyghur kids to Syria and set them up. But um, no, I just think this is the challenge, right, that we have living in this fallen world. And then maybe it's a good place to end it. Like, don't we just have to be like Christ on the cross? And just as we get swept away by these contagions, when we find ourselves in the midst of them, they're just so powerful. We're just going to watch everyone around us get swept away, and we're going to have to be like, forgive them, Lord, for they know not what they do. They're just, everyone's going to be swept away. I think now that actually, um, it's that. Actually, the world is more Christian, even the seculars and the leftists, though. You know what I mean? So I, I don't think of this as we're – we are in an acute sense, right? Like in the sense of being an American where you and I are, being around a lot of conservatives and, you know, liberal, this highly partisan charged atmosphere. Yeah, you might feel in the acute short term that you are kind of left – alone but actually history is moving exactly where we're talking about because history is under the dominion of christ that's so important and christ his way is unfolding right it's so important to understand that history is going somewhere it's not static it's going somewhere and the meat salad here the earth and that's why the most powerful image for tyrants to hide behind is the image of a slain child right i get to do my surveillance of you and i get to do this spending and i get to do this x y and z i get to bomb this person i get to do this kind of thing and curtail civil liberties because here's the picture that's a slave land right that is an indication of what's to come in history that the whole arc of history is moving towards the meat right and if those tyrants are still trying like you said victimists they're still trying to weaponize that meekness but guess what the more we see the bodies piling up on all different sides, the more we start to lose our, our we lose our attachments to the lies, and we start to realize. I guess like, we see God. this in Ukraine, right? We see this in Ukraine. We have been advocating for a ceasefire at the Vulnerable People Project. We've had a statement of support for a ceasefire since the first day of the war. You cannot imagine, well, you can imagine the grief that I got for that statement. 
And uh, you would never imagine after 20 years of failed wars and quagmires that people would be upset at you for calling for a ceasefire. Um, But now even my Ukrainian friends have been admitting to me, friends that were very upset with me for calling for a ceasefire are admitting to me that the war has become futile. There is no chance for success. Um, And we're just going to have to admit it's time for a ceasefire. And one way or the other, as this thing unfolds in Israel and Gaza, people's hearts, I'm, I'm praying you're right. And there are some strikingly courageous people. Charlie Kirk, Candace Owens, Congressman Massey came out and slapped down the Israeli lobby for trying to threaten him behind closed doors. He slapped them down on Twitter. Um, good conservative guy. Candace Owens said, you know, tweeted out, calling me anti-Semite's not like a magic word that's going to get me to, to do what you say, or say what you want me to say. Um, and so I am surprised at a lot of the courage, especially with these young conservatives, people like Charlie Kirk and Candace Owens, because as a young person, uh, it's it takes more courage when so much is at stake for your own personal career and ambition. So I've I've been I've been I've been really I've been really impressed. Have you have you noticed some some courageously strong stands coming out of this of unusual places? We on that day we put it on the front page, maybe it's because they're a little bit of older crowd. They didn't have to worry about their young career. <laughs> no, that's a good. First of all, you know, let me tell you about World Net Daily. I'm glad you brought it up because we're going to wrap this show up. They can follow you, David Gronowski. You, um, uh, how do they follow your writing? You just go to World Net Daily. Can they subscribe or how does that work? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got my bio line at a lot of different outlets, World Net Daily, American Conservative, Newsmax, all over the place. But my website is com, where you can search for my name, David Gordoski, on whatever podcast reads you like and subscribe there. But, yeah. Yeah, well, World Net Daily is iconic. Let me tell you, when I first got to college, the very first thing I did on the Internet, you won't believe this, is I searched – Bast Frederick Bastiat's The Law. And I, I didn't own a copy. You couldn't really buy a copy then, I think. And I could print it out for free. And I felt like I was committing some sort of great crime. You know, I was printing out <laughs> this old French booklet on economics and the law. And I printed that out. And one of the first websites I logged in on uh, was the World Net Daily website. In fact, I logged in on it its very first day. And um, Joseph Farah has the logs, and he says he's going to go back and try to find my... I have to remind him of this, because I logged in from the University of Hawaii's computer lab, and I had found out about it through another website, and it was just the most exciting thing to have a truly conservative, and I, I was a libertarian at the time. I felt it was sort of a conservative libertarian bent at the time. And I was just so excited to log on to World Net Daily. The World Net Daily is an iconic news site. It's It was a pioneer in free press, a truly free press. And so yeah, I commend you know World Net Daily for putting your very courageous, your article up there because it really does take courage in the midst of these enthusiasm to speak out for the vulnerable, even when you feel like no one's going to pay attention, right? Even when you know more people are going to be upset with you than happy with you, 
And I don't know if you read the comments. In the comment section, they're disgusting. They're just really yeah. gross. I would come in, I would ask you folks, click on the article, read the article, and then go read the comments. And yeah. it's as if they think violence isn't real and war isn't real. And I can't imagine that they would speak about violence like that if it was happening around them or to anyone they'd ever met, met or known. Right. I think that I think that goes to what you know you were talking about with a lot of the Israelis wanted to kind of cool it a little bit more than the Americans sometimes because they're so far removed from, you know, the Israelis are right next door. They're like, wait a second, I don't know about, you know, you blow the whole thing up. No, it's too many people. I don't know about that. <laughs> they, have, they have empathy because they know those people. They're like, wait, what? No. Huh? Slow down. Yeah, I mean, some of the most radical anti uh, pro ceasefire protests I've seen around the world were, were led by Jewish groups. Yeah, it, it, you know, that's the thing is that, that there's so much in common that we have, you and I, with the average Israeli citizen and the average Palestinian probably. If we had a meal with them, we would find out so much in common probably. And there'd be things that we think differently of too, but there'd be a lot of common ground to work from. And unfortunately, you know, the nature of governments and so forth uh, and, and, and ideologies, uh, they just end up sacrificing uh, innocent folks of both sides that otherwise would be neighbors if they got to know each other. You know, that's the sad thing. You know, it's never, you know, unless you're, unless you're Gaddafi or Saddam and you go against, you know, the American Empire, people in power rarely, you know, have any kind of, um, you know, uh, puppets for their crimes that they've done. It's always the, the little folks that uh, they get thrown through the meat grinder, whether it's the soldier, the IDF soldier right now risking their life to what end? You know, what's the end point here? How do we actually help, you know, uh, you know, the, the cause of the folks in Israel for the long term, not some kind of short-sighted, let's just emotionally, you know, make a statement here. What are we doing long term here? And maybe there's some cooler heads that are going to prevail in that. I hope so. And I'm glad you brought up the soldiers because we always talk about the women, the children, the elderly, the sick, and they're the, they're, they're the ones suffering. But these soldiers, now that I'm a 52-year-old man, they're children. When I was a 17-year-old infantryman, I thought I was a big, strong man. I was a boy. I have a son now. He's in high school. He's 17. I was older. I was younger than he was when I was already in the Army. And I look at my son. I go, he's a boy. Well, I was a boy like him, but I was in uniform. I was an infantryman. And uh, these are very young boys going into combat. Many of them are going to die. And many more of them will come back with their moral imagination and their nervous system fractured. And um, there are going to be consequences for all these boys. I don't know if you saw the New York Times article about the U.S. soldiers coming back from Syria and Iraq, the artillerymen seeing ghosts of children covered in uh, dust appearing to them. Did you see that article? It was this week. No, I'd like to see Sunday, it. I believe it was above the fold, New York Times, and it's really eerie. They're trying to say it's some sort of PTSD, but all these artillerymen, U.S. Army and U.S. Marines, um, are reporting independently on their own, having visions of children covered in dust and rubble and filled with wounds, appearing them to them in their sleep. And they're saying this is caused probably by some sort of specific brain damage caused by 
the um, weapon system, but amongst the soldiers, the sort of superstitious belief is, is that they were cursed. And so these young soldiers feel cursed. Well, of course they were cursed. Well, oh, you know, that was the original title article that, that you're referencing on World Net Daily that I wrote. The original title I had for it was The Haunting of Christ in the Holy Land. And, uh, wow. You know, there, there's something to that, that we are a Christ-haunted nation, and every other country that we go off in search of monsters to destroy, we end up haunted by the victims uh, that Christ stands in solidarity on the cross with. And, and that's something that's just going to continue to dissolve our nation states into chaos. We are... Jason, I think we need to make this clear. I know you do. We are in a, this is not apocalyptic in the stupid movie sense. This is apocalyptic in the sense of we are not going to be able to make sense of our world. We're not going to be able to have institutions that are stable until we have a reckoning with the knowledge of the Lord, which is the slain lambs since the foundation of the world. The universal proclivity of all of us to be scapegoaters is so important that people learn that right now because it's only the misrecognition and the denial of that truth, which is what what continues this tribalism that turns a blind eye to refugee camps being blown up and, and, and Israeli girls being mutilated and raped. That, 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 that misrecognition that I and myself have the capacity to be a scapegoater is the knowledge of the Lord. And if we don't learn that truly and start catechizing that to the culture, we're going to continue to dissolve. This whole nation is going to fall apart into yep. endless violence. Well, think, think, think how both sides. When you, I will list out all the casualties and all the catastrophes, and both sides, yeah, 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 the suffering of the other side, yeah, 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 yeah. well, but, 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 but when you when you show empathy and and lay out all the ways in which they've been aggrieved, boy, they look at you with appreciation and gratitude, right. and you sure get it. Oh, you get it. And I say, okay, now let's go to the other side and lay out all the ways they've been aggrieved and abused and suffered. And they go, well, well, yeah, but, well, na da 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 well, but this first, but then that, well, but then they had no right, or but da 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 And you're like, wow. And that's what we have to show equal empathy to both sides. Well, let me ask you this question. Do you think that surprises God that humans are still like that? No, and it shouldn't surprise me because I'm the most easily excitable human and the second question is, is God going to be successful in his plan of salvation to save the world, not just save us for some eternal, blissful, disembodied, you know, playing harps on the clouds like neo-Gnostic views of Christianity are, but is he actually going to save this world that he calls good in the beginning of Genesis? Is he going to save this world, which is meant to be his tabernacle for him to dwell with his creation and new heavens and new earth? Is he going to save this world? Will he be successful in saving it? Well, I think that first there will be the cataclysm of of violence of all against all. When the last Christian is swept away by victimism or is martyred. And, 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 And you see why the Middle East plays such a role. Because you have two sides that have very clear, easy to express injustices that they've suffered and one side has a very strong political monetary and temporal power and influence and the other has overwhelming numbers 
And so those who are putting their fingers into the air, looking which way to set their sails as victimists for wealth, power, fame, and influence can look in each direction and see plausible arguments to set their sail to those winds. Right. And I think that they will be irresistible and there will come a point where all is all swept away or are martyred. And so I always tell my team here at the Vulnerable People Project, we should have a competition to be the last person swept away so that yeah. in eternity, you know, there'll be Stephen on the bookend of martyrs and then one of us can be the other bookend, <laughs> you know. Um, but more likely than not, it will be the last Christian is just swept away, not martyred, just... You can feel it, right? Gerard talks about how the Holy Spirit is the only thing more powerful than this contagion, than the spirit of the age. It's so powerful. And and I am very uncharitable. And there's one man who's a very prominent Christian lawyer. He is a very nice man. And I use the word nice specifically. He is a very nice man. I don't think he is a very good man. Um, and he is relentlessly posting despicable posts on his social media and I'm like I I have come to really have very uncharitable thoughts to this guy and I can't wait to see him in person to call him out but I just have to be understand that it's just he's been swept away and he looks at a lot of real things um and uh but I but I think why he's been swept away is calculation he's made in the back of his mind that this is the proper response to continue to have wealth influence and power in his circle and so he's going to do it right yeah there's two two paths that you can if you're, a pub, if you're someone who wants to publicly say something about world affairs both sides have plenty of opportunity for you if you want to double down on one or the other and it's unfortunate that most people don't have the courage to just not do that so yeah well here at the jason jones show we're not going to double down on one or the other because um, that would be disgusting. And I feel we can't shut up either, right? That would be just as bad. I could slink away and just avoid the topic altogether. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's, a, that's another tactic of survival. You know? <laughs> yeah. The Jason Show show is on hiatus right now. Yeah. You know, <laughs> that's like the apostles during... Where did they go? You know, you could be like you, Judas, you or you could be like Peter. What? No, I gotta. I'm finishing my book. It's due to the due, due to yeah. the publisher. This I don't have time to do shows. I, I, I can't comment on everything. Yeah, exactly. You could say, yeah, I'm too busy dealing with all the victims of these other conflicts. I don't have time to comment right now. <laughs> yeah, I only have time yeah. to comment on victims that are popular. Yeah. Which you know what the great thing about VPP is, I feel like so often we are commentating i mean we're always and this is where gerard helped me understand this that when you stand on the side of the scapegoat you become un indistinguishable to them from the mob to the scapegoat so when i founded this organization to stand with the vulnerable i used to wonder why am i always losing donors why am i always building an audience and losing an audience and um you know it's like people will love me they'll oh you know they, they'll join because of our campaign to advocate for the uyghur and they'll be so grateful. Then they get an email from us on some pro-life initiative we're doing. And they, like, write me this letter, horrified that I would be standing with the child in the womb. Or they'd be grateful that I am standing with the child in the womb. But they're horrified that I am, you know, delivering insulin around Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and it's just striking to me that people will commend 
the one thing I do to serve this vulnerable community, but they're horrified that I would do something else to serve another vulnerable community. And I said, well, you know, the, the line of gesture at the Vulnerable People Project is to stand with those who have been utterly abandoned, where there is no worldly gain to, to be had. That's not the best business model, right? Like, I tell people, like, I, it has been the Vulnerable People Project's donors, mostly Christians, but others, um, predominantly the Christians are Catholics, but others, that have been funding uh, millions of meals into Afghanistan, you know? Uh, these are special people that, um, you know, we did just evacuate nuns from and, and others from Khartoum when the, the war broke out. But it's, there are Catholics that are, I have, you know, my, my donors are funding everything from securing synagogues in Afghan, uh, in Rocky, I'm sorry, in the security of synagogues in Africa in countries where there are Islamic enthusiasm, Islamist enthusiasms, killing Jews, to, to advocating for Muslims in Palestine, in, in Gaza. And it is a special kind of donor, it is a special kind of person that weathers all of those battles with you. Right. You know, a better model is to, you know, the two weeks that America's obsessed with rescuing Afghans, we'll just do it those two weeks. Yeah. And then the two weeks they're obsessed with Ukraine, we'll do, we'll do it those two weeks. We'll fundraise those two weeks. We'll do one initiative and we'll move to the next thing. Um, I had a donor say to me, a friend, he's a friend, but he's also a supporter. He's like, well, I guess you've moved on from Afghanistan and Hawaii to Gaza. And I said, well, hold on, brother. We've got a school in Hawaii that we helped set up and rebuild. We're, we're paying for funerals. Um, we're still very much involved across Afghanistan and its neighboring countries. Uh, we're securing parishes in Nigeria and Malawi. We're helping refugees. It's, it's, I said, no, we're not. We don't leave. It's like I feel like we're swimming through the water and we're just – um, if you, have you ever, uh, fished in an area where you try to reel in your line and it catches seaweed, you know, yeah. it just gets harder and harder to reel your line in. It's just like, it gets heavier and heavier to reel our line in because, uh, the past three years, it's amazing what one administration can do. And this administration has seen the world fall apart into catastrophe. And so yeah. little VPP has been stuck having to serve. Uh, more and more communities than, than have been utterly abandoned. And so who has really been abandoned in the midst of this catastrophe in Israel and Gaza? Well, those who have been most abandoned are those Christians in Gaza, so that's where we are. Right. Those who are most at risk in the wake of this are Jews in, in Africa, um, in countries where um, Islamists are radically targeting Jews. So um, that's just sort of our mission. But I used to just think of myself as a big loser. You know, why can't we become like a $100 million a year big nonprofit? And I realized we need to have a different model because when you stand with those the world has forgotten, uh, it's going to be Mary, Mary, and John <laughs> with you at the cross. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. You got to look, I feel the same way. I've been frustrated. You know, I said, man, you know, I've been writing columns since I was 17 years old. Why do I have my old uh, platform like, you know, these guys that have million dollar uh, streaming, you know, shows or radio network, hundreds of stations? It's because my message 
uh, has always been pretty consistently staring with the vulnerable uh, person, no matter you know what the what the story is of that time. And that's not a narrative that people are very familiar with, unfortunately, because it should be with two being Christians, that should be what they're learning every Sunday. But somehow it's not connected to dots somehow, uh, you know. And, and you're not getting that kind of like, oh, okay, you know, I know why. Jason is going after pro-life in this because he's 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 anchored on the human person as his neighbor, and he's trying to uh, give them uh, dignity uh, even when they are most abandoned. Okay, makes sense. That's what the title of the show of the you know ministry is. In the same token, a neighbor's choice is you know this idea that we have the right, we have the choice to be a good neighbor like the Good Samaritan, uh, or or to walk on by. You know, and that that's the kind of you know, through line that I've been doing for years, and it's hard to get a deal. Uh, you know, when, when you're when that's your message, because it doesn't create. Here's the thing: it doesn't, and your thing doesn't do this either. It doesn't provide. Well, yours can in some ways when you're doing something meaningful, like you're feeding, you know, people that need to eat. But I've noticed that as a commentator, you know, during talk radio and stuff like that, you you don't get that catharsis. You know, I mean, when when, when you're when you're staying in your lane, like a, a Mark Levin or a, a, a Elon Omar, and you're just, you know, you can raise, you know, you can get that red meat for your base. You can build a very successful uh, product, right? Just turning that up every time you need to. But when you actually try to, like, no, wait a second, let's actually talk about this like adults. That the the audience of America has not been, I guess, trying to hear that narrative and to be able to like get something out of it i mean obviously i've gotten something we've had over two million downloads on the podcast alone radio all these different audiences so we're doing all right but i feel the same way you feel like yeah you know i could be doing this well but it's a relief right we're doing exactly what we want and it's just liberating to understand it's always going to be quite a challenge but it's like even this show if i do two shows a week we're in the top 100 podcasts in america that's a pretty good deal uh, if I do one a week, top 200, um, and we've been doing a little less than that lately, but we've built a large base of supporters and um, all over the world, all over the world. And so we're just knitting together our tribe that wants to serve the vulnerable. You'll you'll appreciate this. When I was in Hawaii, I went there right after the fire, and we threw a luau for the school. We set up a pop-up school, and then we threw a – a luau for this Catholic school that we had helped set up. And one of the teachers who's from Queens um, came up to me and said, you know, when the fire happened, my mother called me, who's native Hawaiian, but lives in New York city. I think his dad was Italian. He was raised and I believe it was Queens. Um, And he said to me that my mom came up to me or my mom called me and said, you're going to get to meet Jason Jones. And he's like, who's that? And uh, he goes, Oh, he has this organization, VPP, and when there's people that are suffering uh, horrible catastrophes like this, they show up right away and begin to assist. And he didn't know who I was, and he goes, and here you are. Like, you set up our school for us. Your organization set our school up for us. And um, we were there within, you know, 48 hours of the fire. And that was thanks, you know, we're able to do that thanks to our 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 team here at the Vulnerable People Project, our donors and our listeners, the people who listen to the Jason Jones show and support VPP. And so I'm just right where we are. It's never easy, obviously. Um, I just had a consultant walk through all the ways he can make my show much bigger. 
And I said, yeah, but all of that would distract from the mission of VPP, which is I have no interest in doing. I said, the show exists to, to knit together the community to serve the vulnerable, to do the apostolate, the apostolic work of our organization. That's why I founded it. It's not VPP show, it's my show, but I founded it. And the reason I didn't make it VPP show is I don't want my organization to have to, I'm Jason Jones, and I can only do a podcast where I am my own personality. When I'm acting as the president of the Vulnerable People Project, writing a press release or or an article, um, I'm going to be a little more disciplined. If I do something, you know, this show, it's just me being me, but of course, um, it's it's my I founded VPP to serve the apostolate that I had, which is to stand with those that have been abandoned by the world. And David Gronowski, your your show is one of the best shows out there. Um, give us your your um, give us some your parting shot, and then one more time how people can follow you. Well, I think you know that you know, like you said, we just need to pray for peace in the Middle East and do what we can to support you know work like what you're doing to get food or get you know. You know material needs that these folks uh, like uh, like you mentioned the Gazan Christians they need, they, who's there for them right now and I know you guys are going to do something and are doing something uh, and in the meantime we're going to be able to talk to our fellow Christians and really have a reckoning about what Jesus came to do in history and it's certainly not a reversal of the hero's journey where you start off loving and forgiving and then you end up vindictive. I mean can you imagine watching Star Wars and at the end, instead of Luke laying down his life for his father, he just starts whacking the heck out of him with a lightsaber in a fit of rage. I mean, that's not that, – that would have totally ruined, right, the, 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 the ecstatic feeling that people have when they watch these big mythologies that are following the hero's journey, which is inspired by Christ's life himself. So let that be an example that all those movies and mythologies – where they've got this hero who has to lay down his life. Like, even the Avengers, the movie ends with, such a silly movie, right? But it ends with Iron Man laying down his life, you know, self-sacrifice to stop the fighting, endless fighting that's not resolving the problem. He has to lay down his life, his right to his life, in order to save his friends and even enemies. And that is what all movies are, like, inspired by because of what Christ did. So this idea that, like, Christ starts off forgiving and suffering as a servant, but then he comes back. He's just going to be like every other pagan god who's very vengeful and burning people alive with his mouth opening up and swords coming out to hit people. I mean, this kind of view is, is, is a reversal of everything we know about what Christ came to do and has transformed the world. And it's important to get past these false ideologies like dispensationalism that have just skewed people's witness for Christ because there's millions of kids who have left the church because of this vengeful, mutated distortion of Christ's witness that they've heard from the pulpit and echoed in their relationships. And and it's got to go. It's got to go. And so we've got to have that account, that reckoning. You know uh, what? I'm going to I'm gonna dedicate a bunch of shows in the coming weeks and months on dispensationalism and Christian Zionism because you're right, it has to go. It's it is it's perverse um it unravels the gospel it's captured a lot of very good people um but then there's some really brave people joshua charles uh you're a friend of joshua's right oh i'm not sure oh joshua charles is a friend of mine and he's on twitter you got to follow him on twitter 
This guy was he did the he he was putting together the study Bible for the Museum of the Bible. He's a writer and a researcher and a theologian. And he was actually on the Jason Jones show very early on as still a Protestant. And I want to go back and listen to it because he was like, I told him he's the most obnoxiously fair person you will ever meet. Like he's just very measured. He'll say, well, I would, you know, he's just, he's very thoughtful. I said, I really want to listen to the show when you came on as a Protestant because he said at the time, you know, I'm not closed off to the fact of becoming Catholic. I've got a lot of concerns and I'm, but I've been reading the Church Fathers, and I also have concerns about the Reformed Church. Very, very thoughtful guy, but he has been tweeting out against dispensationalism and against um, uh, Christian Zionism in a very thoughtful way. And I thought it was very courageous for Taylor Marshall. I uh, did a show this week, this past weekend, on John Darby and the rise of of dispensationalism. So. Uh, you know, there's people out there, It's the, the conversation is, is beginning to be had. But to me, that it would that it would push Palestinians into almost a non-human category, while at the same time, and this isn't fair to all dispensationalists, but that some of them, more ex- more extreme ones, would say that it's, it's, it's anti-Semitic to evangelize Jews. Have you heard this? They will tell you that it's anti-Semitic to evangelize Jews because they have their own separate covenant. We should leave them alone. Um, And that's that's really bizarre that she would leave Jews outside of salvation. That she would so cavalierly just say, we don't need to evangelize Jews. Very strange. But so I think the time has come. We've humored this cult for long enough. And there is a Catholic. I will even hear Catholics mouth these heresies because they watch, you know, Pastor Hagee, who's a lunatic, or they've read the Left Behind series, um, you know, or they read the late great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey when they were in high school, uh, and that that those those heresies still linger in their minds, which influenced like all of the 20th century or yeah, you know, 20th century Christianity. Yeah, so I just ordered um, the Schofield Study Bible yesterday. And that was my first Bible because Bob Enyart was a televangelist who was very pro-life. And when I was an atheist, I would watch him. He had a dramatic impact on me, and we became good friends. But he was a dispensationalist. He passed away tragically, um, I believe, from Rendezvere, took his life during COVID. Um, But he uh, was a good man, brave man, funny televangelist i wouldn't call it that's not fair to call him a televangelist christian talk show host that was on the lc network and so i'd watch him and i think he advocated the schofield bible so i my, the first bible i owned was a schofield bible who knows where that is now but uh, yeah so i just i'm going to be throwing myself back into dispensationalism now you came did you convert from protestantism yeah i uh yeah i, I got rid of uh I got rid of my dispensationalism a long time ago. <laughs> I mean, it, uh, I, I was, uh, I didn't leave it. I didn't leave the Protestant faith when I got rid of it. I was in reformed. I was in the reformed tradition. Where, to the credit of the reformed tradition, there, there's a lot of pushback against dis- dispensationalism. A lot of them are all millennialist eschatology-wise, uh, and some of them are post-millennialists. So they kind of don't have a place for dispensationalism in their um, in their uh, theological milieu, but uh, uh, you know, I, 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 
think Ron Paul kind of helped me get out of that too. You know, I saw a Christian on stage who was a Baptist, married for 50 years or whatever, had five kids, delivered 5,000 babies, very loyal uh, family man and uh, very kind to everybody, not, not racist towards people and uh, loving guy. And he said, look, you know, we don't have to continue to, you know, give foreign aid to Israel and her enemies. This is not helping Israel. It's not helping us. It's not, you know, and, and that, when I went to Israel, I myself, I met Zionists and they said, please tell your fellow Americans, we don't want your money. We don't want your foreign aid. We're tired of it. We feel like it gives strings attached. It's holding us back from doing what we want to do in our area. Please stop giving us foreign government money. We don't want it. We don't have nothing to do with it. So, you know, when I go and tell that message from those Zionists back home in America, you know, a lot of those uh, folks don't like to hear that. What do you mean? You got to talk to other Zionists. Oh, okay. I'm going to talk to the right ones you want me to talk to. But, you know, they're telling me, no, we don't want to be foreign aid. Let us, let us be ourselves. Let us do our thing. And so it's, it's, uh, it's one of those things that I've, uh, you know, I've been trying to figure out how to reach my fellow Christians, particularly the evangelicals and stuff who are really big into a lot of this thinking and say, hey, you know, wait a second, you got to really, really reevaluate this. But, you know, it's one of those things, Jason, uh, you know, it's, it's a kind of a generational thing. You know, Generation Z and millennials are not really into dispensational theology. And so for them, it's it's almost a matter of time. You know, the baby boomers are the generation that's the, the largest interest in uh, kind of a dispensationalism. And you know, as they continue, you know, to you know transition uh, to these younger generations, that idea will probably fade away on its own. You know, and, but the, so that's why. But it's important in the middle, in the meantime, right, that we preach the gospel to to all people, including our fellow Christians. And the gospel is the same gospel that Paul was preached to by Jesus, right? When Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? He said, oh, I didn't know that. I thought I was doing what the Lord wanted me to do. I thought I was being zealous for the Lord. And he said, uh, you know, it's hard for me to kick against the pricks. You're not going to be able to run for my grace and mercy. And uh, that reversal of zeal. Is and that's a fair point, right? Because a lot of my Christian Zionist friends are the most devout, wonderful Christian men and women I know. And maybe that's why it just makes me so angry. It, it, it just, I get so upset and I get so angry because um, of the two, the two reasons that upsets me most is the idea that we would not want to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to Jews. What? And number two, that we're going to holy, uh, we're basically holy othering Palestinians and holy othering Jews. And Jesus came to end all of that. And you've just right. othered the Palestinians and the Jews. One to suffer mortal death and the other to spiritual death. And um, yeah, so. It's like, it's like the scapegoat ritual with the two goats, right? Yeah, that's very, I got to have you on more often. Yeah, they're the two goats. And the one we're going to sacrifice to separation from God for eternity by saying we don't need to evangelize Jews, and the other others will will sacrifice to um, bombs falling on refugee camps and not even flinch at it. It's, it's really it's really startling, but um, 
Brother, I've had you on for almost two hours. So, David Gronowski, wow. I'm going to let you go. I'm going to put your information in the show notes. And um, I, look forward to, I look forward to seeing from you soon. Seeing you soon. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. All right. Later, brother. God bless. All right, guys. David Gronowski is someone you have to follow. You know, if you haven't read Rene Girard, I'm going to um, put an Amazon gift basket in the uh, – Show notes, little Amazon store basket, so you can see you know, maybe a few books that you can buy. You should also listen to uh, David's A Neighbor's Choice. Gil Bailey has a wonderful new book out. And I feel like we're living through a spiritual exercise because these violent contagions are swirling all around us. And as a Christian, my role is to stand with those who've been abandoned to concern whose dignity has been denied, whose suffering is shrugged at. That's where I'm called to stand. And what's wonderful about it is it's always going to be a challenge. It is really going to be a challenge. That it's You can look. If you wanted to run out there tomorrow and start banging drums uh, for the Palestinian cause, you would have a lot of friends and a lot of cheerleaders um, cheering you along. Same thing. If you went out there and started apologizing for the bombings of churches and refugee camps and the wholly unacceptable civilian casualties and started cheerleading for that, you'd have lots of fans. You'd have lots of cheerleaders. If you stepped out and spoke caution and concern for civilians on both sides while uh, while proclaiming Israel's right to hunt down and kill those terrorists responsible for the attack, um, while at the same time telling them if this is a war for civilization, then act civilized. And if Hamas is placing rockets behind refugee camps filled with children, that that will then be dealt with in a way that preserves the the lives of those children. Um, You can't use their their, their barbaric tactics um, for your savage response and then say you're trying to save civilization. You can't. But the best point, that David made a lot of good points, but I think uh, the, two, the, two great, the two really, whoa, mind-blowing points that David made today was this. Number one, that this is the reversal of the hero's journey. That was, that was absolutely genius, that this is the reversal of the hero's journey. And then secondly, that what we should take from this is they're actually responding to the gospel's message of concern for the vulnerable. That Israel and Hamas both are using the language of concern for the victims shows the triumph of Christianity. So there's that. All right, guys, this episode is always is being brought to you by the Vulnerable People Project. One of the things we're trying to do is serve vulnerable Christians in Palestine, in Gaza, in Bethlehem, exactly, in, uh, specifically in Bethlehem, in Lebanon. So we've partnered with some Christian families in Bethlehem whose businesses have been devastated by this war. And there, the families are making crosses for us. If you become a monthly donor of $25 or more a month, you will get this Jerusalem cross made in Bethlehem by Christian families that can trace their roots in the Holy Land to Jesus, to the time of Jesus himself. 
that it is it is likely that their ancestors heard the gospel not from evangelists or apostles, but from Jesus himself. That they would have ancestors that would have had James as their priest and patriarch and bishop. That's really fascinating to me. It's I'm a, I'm a history buff. When I travel to Iraq and I visit the homes of the ancient Jewish communities, or I go to a church that's been there for the first century, and I look around at those communities, I see the history of the human family unfolding. And as we seek to knit our lives together with those who are truly most vulnerable, because that is what we are called to do as Christians, is to knit our life together, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with the world. Um, What a better way than to give you this cross from the Holy Land, made by families um, that VPP is trying to support, not through charity, but through business. Um, So this is for all of our donors. So go to thegreatcampaign.org. It has been an extremely uh, mentally and soul-crushing time for those of us at VPP from um, recently, just in the past couple of weeks, providing for security of synagogues in Africa to continue our work for SIVs in Afghanistan and the widows and orphans of our allies who were killed in action. Um, We're continuing to support medical missions on the front lines, caring for civilians on the front lines in the war in Ukraine. Um, So it's been really an overwhelming time, supporting those vulnerable parishes in Malawi and in Nigeria. When you go to thegreatcampaign.org and you become a monthly donor, you help us make commitments to support more and more vulnerable communities. Right now in Sudan, there are tens of thousands of refugees entering the Nuba Mountains with no support. We are not yet in a position to support them. Um, As our monthly donors base grows, our ability to support more and more vulnerable Christians and vulnerable people around the world grow. So go to thegreatcampaign.org, become a monthly donor, $25 or more a month, and you get that beautiful Jerusalem cross. All right? Until next time, it was David Gronowski, host of A Neighbor's Choice, on The Jason Jones Show. This has been The Jason Jones Show, sponsored by The Vulnerable People Project. Visit thegreatcampaign.org. That's thegreatcampaign.org. Ooh, 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 ooh.